Hello, everyone, and welcome to People and Passion, Conversations with Immersa Members, a project of the ATTC Network. I'm your host, Doreen Bader, the Executive Director of Immersa. This week, we welcome Dr. Sid Schnoll in conversation with Dr. Paula Lum to discuss the origins of Immersa, as well as gain some insight and history in the substance use disorder field. Dr. Schnoll was a career teacher at the University of Pennsylvania and a founding member of Immersa. He has spent over 50 years working in the fields of substance use disorders and pain management as an educator and a researcher. Dr. Lum is a primary care and addiction medicine physician at the San Francisco General Hospital. She is the current president of Immersa. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Schnoll and Dr. Lum. Thank you for having us. As Doreen mentioned, my name is Paula Lum. I'm the current president of Immersa, and I'm here today with our guest, Sid Schnoll, who's going to bring us kind of an origin story about substance use and addiction and Immersa. We're here today to ask a few questions about his career and his perspective on the field as it stands today. Sid, welcome. Thank you so much for coming and speaking with us. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm looking forward to this. So, Sid, you've been around for a long time. You started working in addictions in the 1960s and into the 1970s. You were one of the original members of this legendary career teacher program. And you were there when Immersa was founded in 1976. You and David Lewis have written about the history of Immersa, but I'm wondering if you'd give me the inside story of how Immersa came to be. Like what makes Immersa different from other national substance use and addiction organizations? Well, um, first of all, the career teacher program, uh, which started in the early 1970s, was designed to try and uh, get a faculty member into every uh, medical school originally to be trained and and be knowledgeable about addictions to uh, teach within the schools. Um, And there was a a group of us, uh, and we would meet three times a year to discuss various issues, problems we had, things that we did that worked. And as the career teacher program wound down, when uh, I think it was the Reagan administration decided that they were not going to put federal funds into training anymore, the group felt that they wanted to stay together to continue to share experiences. Uh, and that was the origin of Immersa. The name uh, really was, uh, it came from Ben Kissin, who was at Downstate and had one of the career teacher training centers. And he came up with the name and and the acronym at that time. Uh, And so that that was the origin. What was going on in that time in history in the country or even in the world um, that that made you guys decide that that there needed to be a teacher in every medical school? Well, it really um, came about if people remember the late 60s, early 70s, uh, a lot of drug use uh, was going on. Uh, Richard Nixon declared uh, the war on drugs. Uh, 
and appointed Jerry Jaffe to head up an off the office, Special Action Office of Drug Abuse Prevention. And soldiers returning from Vietnam, uh, many of them had used heroin in Vietnam. So there were a lot of issues that were going on. And it was really uh, Jerry Jaffe uh, and Dick Phillipson, who also was working at the Special Action Office, who came up with the idea of trying to get faculty members uh, into medical schools who were knowledgeable uh, about addiction. And the grants uh, provided sa some salary, not full salary, uh, but provided salary, provided money for travel so you could visit and get some training and a part-time administrative assistant for each of the faculty members. And then each faculty member had a mentor within their respective institutions who was there to sort of help them through uh, all the issues of trying to get courses into the school. So there was a lot of activity uh, going on. And then as I mentioned, it was suddenly stopped as money was withdrawn from training. And the Nixon administration declared that they had won the war on drugs, which obviously had not occurred. <laughs> so you mentioned uh, some uh, names of people that have been involved in the early days. Who are some of the other people and what disciplines were they from and what did they do? People, uh, you mean career teachers or other people? Yeah, career teachers and career mentors. Well, uh, my, my mentor was Chuck O'Brien. Uh, at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, and uh, David Lewis was the mentor at Brown. And there were a couple of people who uh, filled in at various times as at the career teacher level uh, at Brown. Uh, but Bob Millman uh, at Cornell in New York, Mark uh, Gallanter at uh, NYU. Uh, Gosh, I'm trying to remember all the names. Uh, I can't recall all. That's what happens when you get older. You, uh, names tend to, to disappear. But uh, there were a lot of people involved. Unfortunately, some of them dropped out uh, and did not continue in the role as educators. Uh, many of them continued treating people with addiction, but uh, did not maintain the faculty positions or moved into other areas uh, that had more, more and better funding at the point. Thanks, Sid. Um, something else I seem to understand is that somehow like the NIH got involved, NIAAA and NIDA, like what did they have to do to MRSA? Uh, what, what did they have to do with MRSA? Well, um, the, initially, as I said, the funding came from the Special Action Office. The Special Action Office was then dissolved uh, and it became NIDA. Uh, and initially, there was no NIDA at NIH. There was a narcotics branch at NIMH that was headed by Sidney Cohen. Um, and then that became NIDA. NIAAA existed. And the decision was made that the, 
career teacher program would be jointly funded by NIAAA and NIDA. And I think Doreen Chekowitz and Fran Cotter, uh, Fran was at uh, NIAAA and Doreen was at NIDA. Uh, and they were very instrumental in uh, keeping the funding going. And the person who really, uh, I think, was really important in keeping the career teacher program alive and then moving it to Immersa was Jim Callahan. The career teacher program was actually falling apart because of poor leadership, especially out of NIDA. There were a lot of complaints. A lot of the career teachers were talking about giving up their grants uh, because of problems. And NIDA decided to change the leadership out of NIDA and brought Jim in. And Jim really made a tremendous difference, brought the program back together, people stayed involved, and then the transition to Immersive. So in some ways, Immersive wouldn't exist without uh, NIDA and the NIH and NIAAA. Yeah. Yeah, uh, because the career teacher program would have fallen apart without it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you have the sole distinction of serving twice as president of Immersa uh, in 1977 and again in 1987. What happened? <laughs> <laughs> I was foolish. That was what happened. I, I was very foolish. Um, well, um, Immersa, you know, got off to a you know, slow start. It was just really the career teachers. We started to expand to bring in people from other health professional schools, um, and things were not not going well. Uh, and David and I had a uh, long talk about David Lewis, uh, who was executive director, and he said to me. We need to get back to some strong leadership. Uh, and so he said, I want you to run for president again. Not sure I could provide strong leadership, but uh, David thought I could. And so I ran again, and people were foolish enough to vote for me to uh, become uh, president again. And that was, uh, that's what happened. Uh, but it was, at a time when we were really beginning to move forward, um, there was the conference at uh, the Annenberg Center in California. We were expanding outside of just having meetings in DC. Uh, and there was a lot of activity and uh, people were applying for grants and uh, they were being funded. So uh, things were starting, starting to move forward. And we were, as mentioned, bringing in more people from other health professional programs, which was very important to developing Immersa and keeping it going because the contributions uh, of other health professions, nursing, social work, psychology, pharmacy, uh, dentistry, these were all you know, very important to adding to the uh, dynamicism of Immersive. Uh, so tell me about Project Mainstream. Why, why did you and David Lewis view it as a critical event in immersive history? Well, we thought it was important because it enabled the development of more faculty within the health professional schools. Uh, and so 
one of the problems uh, of the career teacher program was that we were sort of lone wolves uh, trying to move things forward. And um, Paula, maybe you're aware of trying to do things through cur curriculum committees at uh, medical schools. And um, it's like trying to turn an aircraft carrier. Curricula in medical schools are uh, not very nimble. And so it was felt that we could get uh, within each school uh, a group of people who were trying to do the same thing uh, would be much easier to move uh, move things forward. Uh, and in fact, it was true uh, because many of the young people we brought in actually stayed on and continued either in their institution uh, where they had the grant or moved on to other institutions to continue the process. So it was very important in increasing the number of people involved uh, was critical. So who were those people and, and, and what did what did they actually do? Now you're asking me for names again. And I'm not gonna Yeah, I am. <laughs> <laughs> Anybody still in Immersa that was in Project Mainstream? Um trying to well, I think Rich uh, Rich Sates uh, was involved. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Rich Brown uh, was involved. Trying to think of uh, other people, but as I said, I'm I'm not good at remembering names. It's not it's not one of my strong suits. <laughs> um, so there is this theme that I picked up from going to immersive conferences over the years. This theme of survival in the face of adversity, or maybe even in the face of extinction. Um, I'm wondering if you could comment about that, and and maybe even tell me a little bit about what the name. Betty Ford means to you? Well, the, the meeting uh, at the Annenberg Center, um, as you know, the Betty Ford Rehabilitation Center is right next to it. Uh, it's part of the same complex. And that meeting was put together to try to bring a whole bunch of different disciplines uh, and get them involved. And as you know, Betty Ford had a history of involvement with alcohol and benzodiazepine. And so David had a meeting with her, uh, telling her that Amersa was financially in big trouble. And Betty uh, very generously gave some of the royalties from her book to support Amersa. And actually, she gave uh, a plenary session address at that meeting and uh, she had written a book, but it was the first time she had spoken publicly about the history of her own uh, addiction problem and talked about how uh, her physician actually fed her addiction, didn't help her until she realized she had a problem and then sought help someplace else. Uh, so that was that was very important, but it was also important people from many of the other disciplines who were present at that meeting uh, to hear about this. And out of that uh, meeting, we developed a whole bunch of different curriculum materials that were appropriate uh, for other disciplines and were able to get some of the 
resident committees uh, to make it a requirement in some of the training programs that people had to have training uh, in addictions, which really was very important. Well, you know, one of the things that makes Immersa special is that we are a multidisciplinary organization. And I'm wondering if, um, you know, that particular uh, meeting at the Annenberg Center uh, was a part of the beginning of uh, Immersa's multidisciplinary nature. Well, it, it, it had started before then, but really blossomed uh, out of that meeting uh, as more people became involved. And you mentioned Project Mainstream, uh, which also was very instrumental in bringing people in from other, other disciplines uh, and other health professional schools. Uh, you know, uh, I just think back on my own training in the early days uh, of my training. What I was taught was get that alcoholic off my floor. Uh, I don't want to treat junkies. I remember one of the very first patients I saw as a newly minted intern was a man suffering from severe alcoholism. He had ascites, Wernicke-Korsakoff syndrome, and doing one of those wonderful internship, intern workups where uh, I didn't want to leave any stone unturned. I wrote it up and put the primary diagnosis as alcoholism, and the attending walked in, picked up my write-up, wasn't on computers in those days, it was all in paper, took it and right in front of me, ripped it up and said, I don't treat alcoholics. And I mean, that was the education that many people got uh, at that time. And uh, in many places, that kind of stigma still exists. Uh, but there have been big changes since then. Uh, but it really was very difficult. Um, and I was told when I first started to deal with patients with addiction problems uh, that I was wasting my career. So things have changed. Um, you know, we're seeing schools now with whole sections on addiction medicine or addiction psychiatry. Uh, major courses in health professional schools uh, with many champions uh, for those programs. But it came very slowly. Well, thank you for recognizing that that's not the way you want it to be educated and uh, <laughs> banding together with others to really change, um, change the culture of uh, addiction uh, medicine in uh medical schools and other health professional schools. Um, I want to turn a little bit to another question, and that is, what do you feel is one of the greatest scientific interventions that has improved the health or the well-being of people who use drugs? Well, I, you know, I think the recognition, this is probably going to sound weird, but the recognition of harm reduction as an acceptable approach uh, to dealing people uh, with addictive disorders. When I first became involved, there was one approach and it was abstinence. And if you did not achieve abstinence, you were a failure. Uh, 
And, um, you know, it's, it was really very hard to change that culture. And even as recent as uh, Bush two administration, you couldn't even use the term harm reduction. It was not acceptable. Uh, but recognizing that you didn't have to have a complete abstinence in order to change people's lives and make their lives better. Um, and that's consistent with what we do with almost every other disease we treat. Um, diabetes, hypertension, um, you know, not every diabetic maintains an absolutely perfect blood sugar, but, you know, we go along, we want to make their lives better, we accept certain things, and we keep working for that, but it doesn't mean you have to have that in order to be successful. So I think that, that notion of harm reduction, and with that, things like, uh, needle exchange programs. These are things that I think have made enormous differences. Uh, but we can also talk about, you know, back in the 60s, Dolan Nicewander coming up with methadone. Uh, very important to recognize you could treat addiction with a drug and it could be very successful. It didn't all have to be total, total abstinence. Um, and, you know, again, when I first started, and I would uh, have AA and NA meetings in the hospital. I had to be very careful that the people I brought in to run those meetings, because some of them would say, patients, you need to get off of all your medications. And that just wasn't appropriate. So we had to educate people who were running the 12-step programs also to change their attitude. But I think that's been a very major change and I think is improving the way we treat people. And why do you think that is it? I mean, what, what happened in history or what happened in, in our country that uh, brought harm reduction um, in and, and what brought harm reduction into practice and uh, why did people end up finally embracing it? You know, when I first started out, people, who were abusing drugs, it was always them. They were the other people. They, you know, it wasn't the good people. Uh, but I think people began to realize it's everywhere. Uh, it's not just, you know, people in the inner city or uh, somewhere else, people of color. Um, it, was, it, it, it affected everybody. Uh, in all walks of life. And part of that, I think, part of that big change came about uh, with HIV. And as people with HIV, who a lot of them uh, were activists and wanted to see things change, um, and at first, uh, a lot of them wouldn't accept people at HIV who were drug abusers. There was the original quilts that were made excluded people who died uh, uh, from HIV who were drug abusers. But that, that began to change, and that really was one of the things that drove needle exchange programs uh, so that people who injected drugs could do it safely. Uh, so those, those were really 
I think major, major changes. Just a, a, a little sideline here. One of the people who really did some of the early work in this was Robert Heimer at Yale. Robert's father was my mentor in medical school. He did not work in drug abuse. He was a biochemist um, and he worked in immunology and had, uh, he's, he is the one who discovered the rheumatoid factor. I originally was going to do my PhD work with him, Ralph Heimer. And um, one night I woke up in a cold sweat and I was thinking, I don't want to be an immunologist. I want to continue working in this drug abuse. And so I went and spoke to Ralph and he said, oh, you should meet my friend Wolfgang Vogel in the Department of Pharmacology. I think he can help you. And that's when I decided uh, to go in and do my PhD in pharmacology. Because I said I wanted to learn more about these drugs and what they do. Well, thank goodness for those nights when you wake up in a cold sweat and have an epiphany. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, some nights I wake up in a cold sweat and it's not so, doesn't have that good result. <laughs> Uh, so I trained during the HIV epidemic, and it was um, that's when I came to know um, the meaning of harm reduction. Now, my recollection is the needle exchange originated in Amsterdam or, uh, around hepatitis B prevention, and and it was embraced by uh, HIV activists and really brought in as uh, a way to uh, prevent HIV transmission, uh, and and. Um, it's funny the way we talk about the word harm reduction now. Uh, I've seen it used as a euphemism for a needle exchange um, at uh, in kind of government settings because then the 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 word that you could not speak was needle exchange. So people would say harm reduction when they really meant needle exchange. Right. Um, so we really have come a long way. Yeah, and, and you know you bring up uh, that a lot of it started. Uh, in Europe, and the fact is the Europeans were really way ahead of us in, in a lot of areas. Uh, but uh, you know the you know it, it, just a reluctance to embrace some of these things. Uh, you know the uh, the Swiss had the programs where they gave heroin people and, and had some good results. You couldn't even talk about that in the United States. Uh, um, and yet, you know, we know that those programs can be successful. Our Canadian neighbors uh, have done a good job uh, with that, but very, very slow to embrace that here. Uh, and it's, it's sad because I think that a lot of people who need treatment who uh, would become involved through programs like that uh, are being lost. Yeah, I mean, so many people have died um, because of this disease of opioid use disorder and fatal uh, uh, opioid overdoses, um, especially now with, you know, fentanyl being such a big part of the drug supply. And the safer drug supply is still very au courant, right? It's, it's a, it's a, it's a, yeah. Uh, intervention that keeps coming back up as why aren't we doing this in the United States? Yeah, I mean, look at Portugal, Czech Republic, 
Uruguay, uh, they've made tremendous changes and don't see the kind of problems uh, that we see. You know, it, it's very interesting because we only tend to look at the supply side uh, of the problem. Uh, and we don't look at the demand side. And that is, I wouldn't say equally important, it's more important because as long as there's a demand, people will supply that demand. And, you know, as I've been able to see over the years, uh, when I first got started, the major problems were psychedelics and stimulants, amphetamine. And as you watch things, what you see over the years, the pattern goes from stimulants to depressants, back to stimulants, depressants. Uh, it's a sort of never ending cycle. But as new drugs get uh, introduced, they tend to stick. The use may go down a little bit, but they, they don't go away. And back, I think it was around 2010 or 11, um, the FDA had a big meeting talking about how they were going to institute the REMS for opioid drugs. And I guess uh, being a bit of a provocateur, I got up at that meeting and I asked them, would you consider this REMS a success if we saw an increase in heroin abuse? And of course they all looked at each other and said no. And I said, but that's what's gonna happen if you decrease the supply of one drug without working on the demand side, people are gonna find something else to use. And so if you make it more difficult to get the prescription opioid, they're gonna to go to illicit opioids. And of course, that's exactly what's happened. And then you brought up fentanyl. Again, it's not prescription fentanyl that's the problem. It's illicitly produced fentanyl and some of its analogs. And now we're seeing um, some other opioids uh, that were studied back in the 50s and stuff that were not did not ever come to market because of problems with them. And people are now illicitly producing those. So, you know, until we really get a handle on dealing with the demand side, making treatment accessible to everybody who wants it, treatment on demand, we're not going to get any place with this problem. We're not going to solve it by just trying to reduce the amount of the reduce the drug supply. It's not, not going to happen. People are going to find ways to get it. You're describing a game of whack-a-mole. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we, for some reason, we can't get the, uh, the people in government at all levels to recognize what needs to be done. I think we've seen some movement slowly over time but it's not been, been very successful. Um, I mean, when ONDCP was created, I thought maybe we'd see a change, but we've had some directors at ONDCP that uh, have only exacerbated the problem. Uh, they really didn't help it. The concept for ONDCP uh, came from uh, Joe Biden. So with him as president now, maybe we'll see 
some more activity there. Uh, but it's it it's been a problem. I could tell you lots of stories of meetings at ONDCP that were just disasters. So you're talking about the Office of National Drug Control Policy. Yes, yes. Um, yeah. You know, and, and even at NIDA, there were certain kinds kinds of grants. At, there was one point where if you submitted grants for harm reduction, they wouldn't be accepted. So, you know, the politics have played a big role uh, in what's going on. Uh, and hopefully that's that's going to change with the current administration. So, Sid, I mean, when you're talking about the, that the government needs to do something, are you talking about decriminalization or legalization of drug use? Well, I, I think decriminalization is very important. I, you know, I, I used to tell students this. When you make something illegal, you've totally lost control. When you have it legal, you can create regulations, you can monitor things. Um, it's a lot easier to deal with it. Uh, and again, getting back to look what's going on in Portugal, in the Czech Republic, in Uruguay. I was in, uh, in Portugal two years ago. And it's, it's amazing. Yeah, there's, there's drug use, but uh, they have groups there that uh, if you get a drug, you can take it to them and they'll analyze it and tell you what's in it. Is it high dose or low dose? Uh, so that when you take it. Drug checking. Yeah. Right, drug checking. Drug, drug mm -hmm. checking. Uh, you know, uh, actually, I did some of that back in the 60s and 70s. And, you know, I remember one time I was doing it for the police in Philadelphia, and we got a batch of heroin that was very high quality. And the police department said, oh, we should put out a, a bulletin saying people shouldn't go to that neighborhood to get this stuff. Because I said, no, because if you do that, everybody is going to go to that neighborhood to get their drug, and we're going to see an increase in overdoses. So, it just, you know, it, common sense uh, has not applied to this field for a long time. I think we're getting better, uh, but again, I think some of our politicians just don't don't understand. Um, you know, there used to be an interagency working group in the government that ONDC was part of to deal with these issues. I don't think that group has met in 15 years. And when I brought it up at meetings at various uh, government agencies, they find all sorts of excuses not to do it. That they're too busy, you know, it's hard to work together, it's hard to work across different agencies, et cetera. But if we're going to deal with this, as we've seen within Immersa, you have to have a lot of different disciplines involved, a lot of different people. Uh, or we're not we're not going to deal with it. Uh, we're not going to address a very significant public health problem. Um, you know, we we look at COVID with you know half a million deaths, horrible. But you know, again, close to that number die every year from tobacco. Yeah. So we need to address 
you know, address all these things. And uh, when I was treating pain patients, I sort of had a clue as to the patients who were going to be most problematic in the use of their drugs were the ones who smoked. I mean, that was like a, a red flag that this was a patient who was going to have trouble with their drugs. So it, it, it all fits together, uh, but we have to look at it this way. And again, in multiple disciplines, a lot of different fields is the way we're going to do it. Yeah. So, so something I really appreciate about talking uh, to you is uh, you have this incredibly um, long view on uh, time and history and what's going on in the world of substance use and addiction. And you once told me, hopefully being around for a long time imparts some wisdom. Lately, <laughs> lately you've been studying the mounting evidence for the potential therapeutic uses of psychedelics. And you've also seen the effects of these drugs when they're not properly used. And while some, there, there are some communities that have welcomed the decriminalization of psilocybin for personal use, like in Denver and in Oregon, uh, but I've heard you express some concern that if there's an adverse event and it's mishandled, it could really derail the further development of psychedelic therapeutics and you know, even their potential FDA approval. So could you compare for me what you saw happen with psych psychedelics in the 60s and the 70s and what's happening now in psychedelic research and development? Well, back in the 60s and 70s, I mean, there was indiscriminate use. Um, and the big problem was that the drugs were illicit so that if you bought something on the street, you had no idea what you were getting. And I mentioned earlier that I was doing some analysis of drugs purchased on the street. And what I found particularly with psychedelics that only about 50% of them actually contained what they were purported to contain. The other thing is they had contaminants in them and the dosages were all over the place. So, you know, if, if someone, even someone who had experience taking, let's say, LSD or psilocybin and suddenly got a dose that was 10 times greater than what they were used to taking, they would have an adverse event. Uh, and that is my concern about the activities in Denver and in uh, Oregon, that unless there is some good control over quality of the substances available, it's going to be, it's going to be a, big, a big problem. We're gonna get you know, this kind of people with what we used to call bad trips, and all you need is one person who does something crazy like jump out a window uh, and it, that person has a parent who is influential, it could be a terrible backlash. And that's what happened back in the 60s and early 70s when it was claimed that Art Linkletter, who was a well-known television personality, his daughter committed suicide jumping out of a window and she was supposedly on LSD. There was no evidence that she was on LSD, but they, he claimed she was and that created all sorts of 
problems. And I'm just concerned that that could happen again. Uh, when now we're having some really excellent research done in a lot of institutions, uh, not only here in the United States, but around the world, looking at the medicinal benefits of these psychedelic drugs. And the evidence seems to be pretty strong that there are some benefits. And, uh, you know, as you mentioned, uh, the company with which I work is working with many of uh, these academic institutions and others who are trying to develop the, the psychedelics. Uh, and the, the data look very, very promising. And so hopefully there won't be these misadventures to derail the development of these products. The quality of the research that's being conducted now with um, psychedelics seems to be different than what was happening you know, 40 years ago. And what is different about the way this research is being done? Well, it's being done in more controlled settings, you know, where people are actually looking at what we normally do in drug development, looking at placebo, looking at randomized controlled trials to try to understand what's going on. <laughs> Back in the early 60s, when I was in college, Timothy Leary was doing some research with LSD at an estate uh, near Poughkeepsie, New York, called Millbrook. And some of us went to visit him um, at Millbrook, and he was just giving LSD to, to people. And actually, when we were there, uh, you may remember there was a very famous jazz trumpeter, Maynard Ferguson, who was well known for playing very high notes on the on the trumpet. So he had Maynard Ferguson play play some stuff and he gave him LSD and asked him to play again. And I gotta tell you, it was the worst trumpeting I ever heard in my life. The, the LSD did not improve uh, Maynard Ferguson's ability to play the trumpet, at least while he was on it. But they, these were not controlled studies. These were not the kinds of studies that people are doing now, really carefully looking at what's going on. So what's at stake right now with um, uh, with the research, and and you know what is um, what is uh, what is the wisest way forward in making sure that uh, uh, psychedelic therapeutics uh, are evaluated and uh, have uh, the same chance at being developed along uh, the lines where they can you know become legal medications as opposed to um, uh, still living in that kind of illicit world? Well, I think we have to be careful uh, in terms of these places that are legalizing or decriminalizing the psychedelics to make sure that there are controls uh, that are looking at the quality of what's available, uh, the dosages that people are aware that they're informed on what are the appropriate ways to take it. Otherwise, if we have widespread indiscriminate use, we're going to have problems. And, you know, making sure that the research that's going on is well done and meets the standards uh, for FDA. And, and FDA actually has given breakthrough designation to some of these products. And so we have to make sure that the research continues to be of high standards. Uh, and that's what we're trying to do, make sure that this happens. 
what do you think uh, about cannabis, you know, in, in that respect? Is there an, an analogy there? And are, are we learning something about the ways in which cannabis is being um, uh, legalized or decriminalized in some states? And what are we learning about quality control and uh, adverse outcomes? We are learning about about quality control in those states, uh, although I, I remain very concerned about edibles, that a lot of the edibles contain very, very high quantities of THC. And you'll see on the packaging, it'll say, you know, only eat a third of this at a time or something like that. But then somebody takes the wrapping off the package uh, and it's left out. And somebody else says, oh, there's a brownie or there's a gummy bear or, or whatever. Uh, and take it. So I, I think we have to be very careful uh, around that. And, and we have to make sure we have good quality control in the products that are being sold. Uh, I mean, one of the things we saw, you know, the vitamin E acetate that uh, was being added to some of the vape, THC vape products, but that was done in states that had not legalized. But we had this whole big thing that it was in everywhere and that it was in, in nicotine vaping products. Uh, I mean, it just, it, it got out of hand and, and that's what happens. And that, that's my concern with the psychedelics that you have something happening in one area for a particular reason and it just gets blown out of proportion. And so it, it can set things back. Uh, and I, I wouldn't want to see, see that happen. Uh, you know, it gets back to what I was saying before. When something's illegal, you've lost all control. And if you legalize it, you can have regulations that address quality, quantity, uh, a, lot of, a lot of issues. You're also reminding me of our earlier conversation about harm reduction and what is it that we can do as educators um, to teach people how to use more safely. Yes, I mean that's that's very. We're not gonna we're not gonna make these products go away. There's no magic that we have to do that. And so if they're going to use them, to use them safely. And there are many people who do. You know, uh, there's been a lot of publicity. Uh, with Hart's new book, you know, Drug Use for Grown-Ups, maybe I have the title a little wrong. And, you know, actually, that goes way back uh, to one of David Lewis's uh, mentors, Norman Zimberg. Uh, and Norman Zimberg wrote about heroin shippers uh, who used heroin in a controlled fashion. You know, I can tell you when I first got involved with heroin, you know, uh, David Smith at Haight-Ashbury and Don Wesson wrote a book, Don't Even, It's So Good, Don't Even Try It Once. That was the title of their book. But after reading Norman's work, I remember I was doing the intake for the methadone programs in Philadelphia, and uh, a gentleman came in. Uh, who wanted to get on um, to methadone. And as I was taking his history, he was a master mechanic and he was retiring. And every day when he would come home from work, he would buy a bag of heroin 
the way someone would come and have a drink. And he said, I want you to know that I never missed a day of work. The quality of my work was top notch. And he actually gave me the telephone number of his boss who knew about his heroin use. And I called his boss and his boss verified everything. And the reason why he wanted to get on methadone because he was retiring and he wasn't sure he could afford heroin anymore. Uh, and he wanted the methadone. But it, there are many people who were using drugs in ways where they weren't getting into difficulties. But again, him buying his heroin on the street, he never knew how much was in the bag, uh, what the quality would be. And if you know what the quality is, then you can adjust what you're doing. You know, hopefully when you take a, a pill for anything that's produced commercially, you know what's in it. You know what the parameters are. Uh, when you buy something on the street that's illegal, you don't. So you mentioned Norman Zinberg and, you know, his book, Drug Set and Setting, it uh, was revolutionary. Yeah. And I think it's required reading for anybody in uh, taking care of people who use drugs. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he really was, uh, I guess, the pioneer of harm reduction in the United States. And as I mentioned, he was very influential to David Lewis. Yeah. Um, earlier, we were chatting a little bit about COVID-19. and just wanted to ask you about, you know, what is the impact of this global pandemic on your work, on what you think is happening to the lives of people who use drugs, um, and its impact on the larger field of substance use education and research? Well, certainly, I think some of the relaxation uh, in terms of uh, getting people into treatment, you know, the telemedicine, making treatment more available. I think that's been very, very important. And as you know, one of the things that, you know, we don't know what's going to happen with it, uh, but the previous administration actually put out a guidance uh, to eliminate the X waiver, uh, the uh, training for the, for the X waiver. And that, that could be very important by making, to make treatment more available. We know that in countries like France, where any physician can prescribe uh, buprenorphine. At first, they said there were all sorts of problems, but that was nonsense. They've had better treatment. And I think that, you know, we, we make this big deal about prescribing buprenorphine. Uh, there are many drugs that are out there that are much harder to prescribe than buprenorphine and a lot less safe. And we don't require people to take special courses to do it. Uh, and I think that most people who prescribe medication, before they prescribe a medication, they want to learn about it, whether it's the reading or speaking with peers. Uh, and I think that that, that will happen. So I, I think it may be a good thing and we'll see what happens uh, as it's being investigated by the current administration. Um, but it's, you know, they're, it's, it's very mixed. There are some organizations, I think ASAM, AMA, have come out in favor of eliminating uh, the training, uh, but other organizations have uh, come out to say we should continue that. I'm not sure where Immersa stands on that. Well, we did have a spicy debate on Xing the X waiver. Yeah. 
in 2020. But I want to know where the organization stands. <laughs> I, I think just uh, uh, watching the uh, the spicy debate and uh, talking to other MRSA members, I believe MRSA is firmly in the um, camp of uh, increasing access to treatment. And if that requires getting rid of the data 2000 regulation, uh, I believe we're all for it. Yeah. If you look at the data, and uh, I think you may know, uh, I look at buprenorphine data every day because uh, I'm doing the metrics for the REMS uh, for the buprenorphine uh, sponsors. And, um, you know, they, they said, well, we're going to improve uh, treatment by increasing the number of people that people can treat. But there are very, very few uh, prescribers or anywhere close uh, to the number of people they can treat. The average prescriber who is prescribing buprenorphine has less than 10. What we need to do, rather than increasing the number of patients that a prescriber can see, is increasing the number of prescribers. And actually, uh, right now, we're seeing huge increases in PAs and NPs. And I think that that's very positive. But again, the same problem, not all of them are prescribing and small numbers. I was just talking to uh, some of the community paramedics in San Francisco yesterday, and they want to be able to uh, administer buprenorphine after an overdose. Uh, and so I think what you're saying about increasing the number of people who are able to administer or, or to prescribe the medication um, makes a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah, we've got to do it. And I think having uh, first responders, EMTs being able to do it would be great. Look look at the positive results we're getting uh, in EDs where Gail D'Onofrio you know, led the charge there. Uh, I think that's made a big change in making buprenorphine available to people who need it. And when you get people at that point where they're at, you know, a low low edge because they just overdosed, you can influence them greatly. Yeah. You got to love that Gail D'Onofrio, who, uh, by the way, I think it was 2000, was it 2019 that she won the Betty Ford Award right. um, from Amersa? So Betty Ford is still with us. Yeah, no, no it's, it, it's great. Gail's done a great job there. And so many other people in EDs around the country Somebody in California whose name I can't remember uh, has a whole net. That would be Andrew Herring. Right, right. That would be Andrew Herring in Oakland at Highland Hospital. Yeah, yeah. I told yeah. you I'm bad at names. I remember what people do. I just don't remember their name. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, he's doing terrific work. Yeah. Um, so just kind of going back to COVID, um, what I'm hearing you say, I mean, yes, it's been a devastating, horrible um, event in history. 500,000 people dead in the U.S. Uh, as of uh, this week. But you are a little bit of an optimist. And, you know, you're seeing the silver lining. You're saying to me, you know, out of disaster comes innovation and comes opportunity to change a broken system. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think uh, we're seeing certainly the disaster of people dying from COVID, but we're also seeing increases in people abusing different substances. 
sales of alcoholic beverages are up. Uh, I mean, look at what we're seeing now with uh, uh, illicit methamphetamine, uh, which is uh, becoming an enormous problem. Um, and we need to do more, as I said, on the demand reduction side. You know, we, we made this big deal about, you know, Smurfs and other people who are uh, producing methamphetamine. That's not what's happening anymore. It's all coming across the border now. Very pure stuff uh, coming from labs in other countries. The same with the fentanyl. So, you know, it's, it, we need to be really careful uh, when we just look at, at supply side. Um, and we have to, you know, be aware that when we have these crises, especially where people are being isolated, uh, that people turn to chemicals to make themselves feel better. Uh, and that's a problem and we should be addressing. Someone once told me there's only two reasons why people use drugs. One is to feel good and the other is to feel better. Well, it's probably true, you know, and, and I'm sure you've heard it. I, I can remember many patients when I would ask them about when they first started taking drugs or drinking alcohol. And they, most of them can remember the very first time vividly. Uh, and they would say, you know, when I had my first drink or I took my first drug, it was the first time I felt normal. And it's it's just amazing. Uh, so we need we need to consider that you know. Uh, and for too long we've said, oh, these are bad people. They're immoral. Uh, you know, we created all these stigma around people who use drugs. These are everyday people who have, uh, as I look at it, for the most part, a genetic predisposition that you know, results that when they do take the drug, they have a def very different reaction from someone who doesn't have that predisposition. You know, if you look at the twin studies and other things, they show that uh, genetics play an enormous role uh, in people who uh, develop uh, problems with drugs. Yes, and it, it also speaks to the, you know, neurobiological basis for addiction. Right. Right. Um, so, Sid, um, just talking to you, you know, I, you've made so many contributions uh, to the field of substance use and addiction. Is there like any specific one of which you are most proud? Well, a um, couple of things. Um, one um, very, you know, in the actually in the eighties. I started working with a good friend, a pulmonologist, looking at the pulmonary effects of drug use. And uh, particularly people who smoke various drugs uh, and even injecting because of the particulate matter that lodges in the lungs. And we were able to show significant uh, deleterious pulmonary effects. Uh, and the other, the other thing, that I'm particularly proud of is the development of the radar system. And a lot of people don't know about the radar system, but it is really one of the major sources of data on prescription drug abuse. 
And actually the FDA now buys data from them and has, you know, they publish a lot of the data. That was something that I developed and, and founded um, and still work with them. I'm on their scientific advisory board. But I think that was a major contribution. I had no idea you were behind the radar system. Wow. Yeah. I mean, for our, for our listeners, can you say a little bit more about radar, what radar does? Well, radar uh, collects data from a number of different sources uh, on abuse of prescription drugs. Um, and actually, um, I developed that when I was working uh, at Purdue Pharma, which, you know, when you mentioned Purdue, everybody uh, gags and, you know, thumbs down. But um, I had been working on a similar, developing a similar system for tramadol when tramadol first came to market. Uh, and we developed a post-marketing program. Uh, actually, everybody who was on the original committee for that has passed away. Uh, Mitch Balter, Ed Sine, Bob Angarola, they're, I'm the only one still alive from the original group uh, that put that together. But when I was uh, asked to join Purdue, they were very concerned about what was going on with OxyContin. Uh, but they had no data and they wanted to collect data. So uh, I moved some of what we were doing with tramadol and then we expanded it. So we, we look at a whole bunch of different sources of data, poison centers, law enforcement, treatment programs. Uh, we look at the web to try to get information about what's going on uh, with various drugs. And two of the most significant factors in that, that I think really help us understand what's happening is one, we look at geographic effects. So data are collected to the first three digits of the zip code. So we can look at where problems are occurring uh, because things do not happen evenly across the country. So that's very important. Secondly, data are reported quarterly. Um, so we're on top of things very, very quickly. Whereas um, when you look at federal data sets like National Survey, Drug Use and Health, or Treatment Episode data set, sometimes it's two, maybe three years before the data uh, are published, and that's a problem. So being able to have geographic specificity and the timeliness, I think, the major, major contributions of the radars uh, system. And I think uh, Rick Dart at Denver Health has done a fabulous job in maintaining it and keeping it going. Is radar tracking psychedelics? Uh, not at this time. Uh, but I'm trying to convince them to start uh, yeah. to start doing it. Uh, and particularly since they're in Denver with what's happened in Denver. Uh, and so Rick is, uh, they're trying to set, set that up. I mean, one of, one of the things that uh, Radars does, um, 
and, and actually, I have to say, our original work with tramadol led to this. Up until we were doing the tramadol work in the early to mid-90s, FDA, through their uh, fare system, was collecting adverse events. But they were just collecting number of adverse events. So if you had a drug that had a million people taking it, and a drug that had 500 people taking it, and they both had 100 adverse events, the FDA just said, oh, look at this. They have 100 adverse events. But when we started doing tramadol, we said, wait a minute. You've got to look at the rate. How many people are taking the drug? How many pills are out there? What's going on? Uh, and we convinced FDA that they should look at rates. So I, I guess that was one of the major contributions we made also. Uh, and, and one of the problems is, what's the right denominator? Yeah, denominator problem. It's very, so you gotta look at a lot of different denominators. So you can look at the number of people who are taking the drug, um, you can look at pills, you can look at prescriptions, but you know, none of them are perfect. And that's why you have to look at, at a host of them. And actually we came up with a denominator um, terrible with acronyms, um, but we called it ERD, Unique Recipients of Dispensed Drug. And we would look at the number of people within a geographic zip code who were prescribed that drug within a given quarter. And we thought that that was the best denominator, but the FDA didn't like it. They like pills. But if you have somebody who is prescribed, uh, let's take opioids, an IR opioid, they're taking that maybe four to six times a day. You, and if you have somebody who's taking an extended release opioid, they may be taking it once or twice a day. So when you look at numbers of pills, can you equate those? And then you also have to look at dose. So there are- And then you also have to look at, you also have to look like who's, who's like um, taking the pills out of that patient's um, pill bottle in, 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 the, in, the, in the bathroom, right? Um, they probably store their medications in the bathroom cabinet and it, they may be going to more than one person. Well, that's, that's also true. They may be going to more than one person. You know, we look at that, but think, think about that. Yeah, if I, I go in and I, I go to your house and I go to the bathroom, open the medicine cabinet, and I see, oh, there's a bottle of whatever uh, that's been sitting there for <laughs> quite a while because... Very few people throw away their medications because they've spent money to get them. And I take two pills out of that uh, because I think you're not going to recognize that a couple of pills are missing. Is that going to be what's going to drive my habit? Uh, I've got to continue somewhere. So I'm going to need another source. I can't keep going to your bathroom to get, to get my pills. So, you know, we, we look at that and we know that people who initiate taking particularly opioids, 
65, 70% say they initially got them for friends or relatives out of cabinet. But we don't ask, did you continue taking them? And what was your source after? So we need, we need to look at this in a more comprehensive way, which we don't do. So thanks, Sid. I have just two more questions to, to ask you, and then I guess we'll wrap up. Um, here's a big question for you. Uh, why, why are substance use education and research critical to advancing the health and wellness of the nation? Uh, I, I think that's a, a, actually a simple answer. It's our major public health problem. And unless we deal with it, you know, I, I used to tell my residents and students, um, in the old days, it used to be, if you knew TB, you knew medicine. Now I say, if you know substance abuse, you know medicine, because there are so many sequelae that develop. And so, you know, I, we talked about uh, smoking, you know, tobacco smoking, people who inject drugs develop all sorts of infections. You know, it, I mean, we could go on and on accidents. Uh, it, it's our number one public health problem. So it's critical that we teach everybody uh, about it. Um, I remember when I developed a consult service and we were seeing a lot of people uh, on trauma surgery uh, because many of them were intoxicated at the time they had their accident. And the head of trauma surgery who initially sort of poo-pooed us, actually supported one of my nurse practitioners uh, to be full-time on his service because there were so many people who came in who were intoxicated at the time they came in. And actually going way back, uh, I had a couple of papers about people with uh, spinal cord injuries uh, and substance abuse very, very common in people with spinal cord injuries. Uh, uh, with a collaborator, Alan Heinemann, uh, who was at Research Institute of Chicago, a Rehab Institute of Chicago. Alan is still working uh, in the field. You know, so very, very important. It touches all of healthcare. So maybe as a result of you and, and your nurse practitioner, I, I know that, that now every level one and two uh, trauma center is required to have someone on hand to screen uh, and provide intervention for alcohol uh, problems. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, maybe we were, maybe we started something. <laughs> um, so Sid, as we, as we are nearing the end of our time for our podcast, I wanted to ask you one final question. Are you ready? <laughs> okay. <laughs> What is your hope for the future of the field of substance use and prevention, treatment, and recovery? Well, um, first of all, I'd like to say I've seen enormous changes over the 50 plus years uh, I've been working uh, in the field. And I'd like to see one continued progress in having more people in health professions, schools uh, being trained uh, in the area. Uh, I think that's essential. I'm thinking back to when I I gave my McGovern address 
to immerse in. And the central theme of that was that we will be in good shape when uh, substance use disorders become primary care disease and not just treated by specialists. Uh, and the model I used was endocrinology. Most endocrinologic disorders are treated by primary care people, internists, uh, family practitioners. It's only the difficult problems that get referred to the specialist. And so my hope is that's what substance use disorders become, where every primary care practitioner can say, I know how to deal with this and can treat the disorder. I think then we'll be in much better shape. Sid, I share that hope and thank you so much. Uh, thanks so much for sharing your insights and this grand history with all of us today. I really appreciate you and your time and the contributions that you've made to the field. I've learned so much about how you were involved in, in so many of the innovations that we are uh, seeing bearing fruit these days. Thank you. So thank you to all the listeners for joining us today and feel free to connect with us. Take care, everyone. And that was Dr. Sid Schnoll and Paula Lum in conversation today. Thanks so much for tuning in and we sure hope you'll join us again soon. To learn more about the ATTC Network and the Association for Multidisciplinary Education and Research in Substance Use and Addiction, please visit our websites at attcnetwork.org and immersa.org. For a transcript of this podcast and other related resources, please visit the ATTC Network website. This podcast is supported by funding from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. Its contents are solely the responsibility of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official views of HHS or SAMHSA. Information shared and views expressed reflect the speaker's best understanding of science or promising practices at the time of recording and should not be seen as directives. Content related to privacy and security in 42 CFR Part 2 presented during these sessions should not be construed as legal advice, and listeners are directed to discuss recommendations with their agency's legal counsel. Thank you for tuning in today. We hope that you'll join us again.